Why do kids play sports? Is it to go pro or earn a scholarship? Or are they looking for extraordinary experiences that they can build on for the rest of their lives? I'm Coach Dave Vasileros, and this is the Dad Bod Soccer Podcast, where we will explore life lessons and universal truths taught by youth sports. I'm just a regular guy. I grew up playing soccer, coaching all my kids, staying around the game that I love. I want to help the next generation of parents and coaches keep youth sports about the kids. And I am so glad that you're joining me. Welcome to Dad Bod Podcast, episode one. This is Coach Dave Vasileros. Today, we're kicking off with what I think is the big picture. It's the reason why I'm even doing this podcast. And that is, I want to talk about the 99% of us. The question for today is, why do kids play sports? I'll talk about the 99% of us who aren't going to be pros or even get college scholarships, yet we play soccer, yet we play these sports that we love. To make this the best possible first episode, I had to find a guy who was way better at, at this stuff than I am. His name's Spencer Smith. He's a friend of mine. He lives in Texas. He's a, an experienced podcast host. He has, amongst the health insurance nerds of the world, it's a very popular podcast. It's called Self-Funding with Spencer. I'll put a link down in the show notes. If you want to learn anything about self-funded insurance, in this case, also captive insurance and some other strategies for funding your benefits. He's your guy. So anyways, he's a husband, he's a dad, he's a former college soccer player, and he has by far the best hair of any of my podcast <laughs> guests. So you can't see that, but just take my word for it. Spencer's joining me today. We're going to talk about and dig into why kids play sports and, and what is it about sports that brings out in us this, this thing that we're, you know, as parents, especially dads. We think that our kids are going to go be the next LeBron James or the next whoever it is. And what does that mean for our kids and how does that affect their experience with sports? Spencer, welcome, welcome. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me, man. That was quite the intro. I really appreciate all the kind <laughs> words. But I, I was telling you before we were starting this, man, I'm actually genuinely very excited to cover the subject. Soccer is a passion of mine. I've got kids myself now that are entering into youth sports. And this is a topic that I have a lot of opinions on. Soccer did a number of great things for me in my life, and I'm happy to share some of those stories. Yeah, I'll expect that because that's, that's what we're talking about. And remember, this is a podcast for regular people. Yeah. I'm a regular dude. I have kids. I've coached my kids. I live in Idaho. Just a regular guy. You're a regular guy. We aren't pros. We just love sports, but we love kids more. And I think that's mm -hmm. kind of the point here is we want to help parents and coaches give their kids an extraordinary life experience through sports. So I'm going to be looking for stories from you for sure. Let me start with, gave a little bit of background and I want you to talk more as we go through, but tell us kind of like one, one quirk or one thing about you that nobody really knows outside your inner circle. Well, so the, the quirk that maybe some of the people that know me well know, and I've occasionally been open about it, but I love very, very heavy metal music, like the weird kind of stuff that normal people would look at you in sideways if they heard the, the type of music you listen to. And I've found buddies within the industry, but also outside the industry. We're our own little clique. We're our own little unique <laughs> crew of guys that are willing to go to concerts and things like that for some, some crazy bands. But I've also discovered, Dave, and you, you can appreciate that as being a guy with a, a few kids and middle age like myself, there's also nothing wrong with a dad that like, can turn on a white zombie or a Pantera and listen to that and then <laughs> go coach his kids and his daughter in soccer, you know, and I, I've discovered that it's actually okay 
to maintain that specialty of interest in music, even though I've got a, a normal life and a professional career and all of those things. So that's, that's probably the biggest quirk about me that most people don't know. Oh, that's amazing. Now, I got to ask you, you're still going to these concerts. Are you earplug level yet? I mean, you're not 20 no, anymore. I know I'm supposed to. I know it's strongly advised to do so, but no, my ears are not plugged and I don't go, I don't go front of the speaker anymore, Dave. You know, I've got a buddy of mine that here's local. He's 50. He's been into metal his whole life too. And and we always pick seats with really good views, but well back from the speaker. So it's a little more tolerable. Okay. All right. Well, smart move. Heavy metal. Also, you got to know Spencer loves working out. So he usually puts yeah. those two things together and yes. I can see why. All right. Second question, just kind of intro to get things kicked off. Right off the top of your head, who was the coach that you had grown up who meant the most to you? And what did you learn from him or her go? The coach that meant the most to me was a gentleman named Chris Hayden. He was my club coach for the Texas Lightning Club, which I think is now, I don't know if it's defunct or maybe reformed, but you know how those clubs go. And so Chris was my coach when I really got competitive at soccer, probably 15, 16 years old. We were in Dallas, Texas. And so we were in the classic league there. We we're always outside the top four. You know how like EPL has their big two or big three. We we're yep. always the fourth best team in the league. But one season, we were actually able to win state cup my senior year. Mm. I had some fortunate moments, but also played really well. Chris was really instrumental in that, but he was the first guy that really showed that there was a path to play in college. And he also demonstrated what it took. He was very vocal about the commitment level that was required. One thing that he told me, David, you'll like this. One thing that he told me that stuck with me to this day, and I've even shared with my daughter, is he said he could always tell who was a good soccer player by how worn out and tattered their soccer ball was. His mentality was that that ball was attached to your foot no matter where you went, that it was all beat up and dirty and mangled. But that suggested you were probably committed to the game and you were very likely a good player because of it. Wise words from, from Coach Hayden. Because you're playing at home, right? And it goes for basketballs or it goes for whatever, you, you know, whatever equipment you use. I've coached this game a long time and it's the same thing. I see the kids, the kids who play at home, you see the difference when they show up, mm -hmm. right? And whether they become pros or whether they go to college, it's, it's secondary. Primary is these are kids who have a passion for and are willing to put work into improvement. 100%. I actually had that conversation with a mom the other day. My, I will get into my daughter playing. I don't coach them anymore. But one of the moms was a high school coach and her daughter's kind of a cut above everybody. She's very, very good naturally. But she was telling me that her daughter also kicks the ball all over the house. She now as a mom gets to witness the, her daughter's obsession with soccer and kicking against the baseboards. But that relationship that she has with the soccer ball where it's always attached to her feet is translating into the field even at six years old. Yeah, absolutely. This is such an important question. I'm going to ask every guest who comes on this podcast, who's the coach that had the biggest impact on you and why? And I hope that that triggers some thinking amongst all the listeners to say, oh, let me look back and think about the coach who had the biggest impact on me. And it may not be always the person who helped me win the most, maybe the person who taught me something that I carry with me today and it impacts how I live. So, all right, well, let's, let's jump in here. I mean, this podcast is really to say, why do kids play sports? And what's the right role of parents and coaches in all of this? And I want to start by looking at a survey. Ameritrade, which is a financial services firm, did a survey back in 2019. And they asked parents about their level of commitment to their kids' sports. 
And I want to bring this in and there'll be a link down in the show notes. I'm going to pull out some of the findings from this and, and here they are. I'm just going to name them. One, parents are spending more money than ever on youth sports. Two, parents, and this surprised me, they're working longer, they're saving less for retirement, they're going on fewer vacations, and they're racking up more credit card debt to afford their kids sports. Mm -hmm. I'm going to come back mm -hmm. and talk about that. This one, this one's crazy. Nearly half of parents are pretty confident. That's the quote, pretty confident that their kids are getting scholarships for sports. 34% of parents believe their kids are going to go pro or make the Olympics. <laughs> okay. So I know you chuckle. I chuckle. I'm like, come on, man. Really? Here's the real numbers. And I'll put this other survey. I'll put the link to this in the notes as well. And this is just a simple one pager. It says from high school to pro, how many will go? 59% of high school football and basketball players believe they will get a college scholarship. 98 out of 100 high school athletes never play collegiate sports of any kind at any level. 98 out of 100 at so any level, D3, no. NAIA. Yeah. yeah. Less than one out of every 100 high school athletes receive a scholarship of any kind to a Division I school. So, I mean, those are the numbers we're dealing with, right? I mean, it's 0 0.02 to 0.03% of high school players end up playing in the NBA. I mean, so, so that's the facts. That's the yes. facts. Yes. What's your response? I mean, what's your reaction to any of those data points I just threw out of you? Well, I would say surprising, but not surprising simultaneously. I didn't know quite the scale of those numbers. I think I've looked into it in the past, but haven't kept up to, up to date. I knew it was, the odds are astronomically against you to be pro. I didn't realize they were quite that against you even to play in college at all. I didn't realize it was only 2%. Yep. My mind says it was more, but also that might be my sort of myopic bias having played, played myself. But it also doesn't surprise me because I realized every level I jumped up from, you know, maybe division two club to division one club to then playing at a team that made obviously the, the state cup. Then we went to regionals and got dominated in regionals. You realize there are <laughs> hundreds of levels then you go to college and there's D3 or NAIA, D3, D2, D1, and then there's elite D1 and the, the levels are, are still there. That hierarchy is still there. So it doesn't surprise me, but I think it also it adds some, I would say some, it should add some awareness to parents if they hear those numbers to know, hey, perhaps knowing that the odds are quite that far against my daughter or my son. The, that might shape the way that we approach the game and maybe the way that we handle how they play and our mm. temperament and things like that. I would hope that perspective lends itself to perhaps the way that they treat their kids, knowing it's very unlikely that they're even going to go to college, let alone play pro. Yeah. And you're, you're a dad of young kids, right? You're just mm -hmm. starting out with, with coaching your kids or, or being involved with your kids' sports. And, and you hear this, I'm going to read this one again. Parents are working longer hours, saving less for retirement going on fewer vacations, racking up more credit card debt. And one I didn't throw in that was also on that list. They're taking second jobs. Mm. Okay. So to afford their kids sports, what kind of pressure does that translate into onto the kid? I suppose it depends on the parent, right? I would hope that it doesn't necessarily translate. I know as a dad now, one of my responsibilities is sort of absorb pressure and stress and then not have it transferred to my mm -hmm. children. But I imagine it's difficult sometimes, especially if somebody is working two jobs just to pay club fees or something like that. there's, there's gotta be an added element of a gee, I hope this pans out so that we didn't waste the money. But I found, you know, I'm 40 myself, David, I've found the older I get, the more I realize that attachment to outcomes is really a fool's errand and you have mm. to 
be doing things like podcasting like you're doing for the process itself and the joy of the thing, not for some perceived outcome that's out of your control in the future. And so I hope, again, that that shapes the way that parents convey this or communicate this to their children, that it has to be about the, the relationships, the, the skills they develop, the interpersonal things that they're able to achieve. It, the sport is almost secondary. It almost doesn't matter what sport they play. Yeah. What a great insight that the, the attachment to results is a fool's errand. I mean, in the workplace, this has been out there a lot recently where, where it's, let's focus on the process. And I know you're in sales and I know in uh -huh. sales, and, and I'd probably like you to speak on this just briefly, but as it, as it relates to parents and their kids and how they're playing, this idea of process being the goal, right? Uh -huh. Not the outcome being the goal. How could that relate and what kind of advice could you give to parents and coaches of kids based on that experience? Well, I'd say from a sales perspective, when I was a younger salesman about 10, 12 years ago, I was very attached to the outcome because it was my first opportunity to produce results that also I was compensated for said results. And so I could tangibly see that I controlled my destiny to a degree. So I was very attached to trying to make a sale because I obviously knew the benefit to my family as a result of that. But over time, I realized that those peaks and valleys in sales or anything else, when you attach yourself to the outcome, your emotions will, will follow suit and you tend to be very high and very low, but you're not very stable or very stoic in between. Yes. So as yep. I've gotten older, a little wiser, I've realized that you have to keep an even keel when things are going great and when they're going not so great because that outcome most of the time is outside of your control. What is in your control is how do I approach my job in the morning? Like what sort of sleep am I getting? What is my process to get ready in the morning? Like, am I taking care of myself? Am I making the right number of calls, my activities? Everything I just listed literally would plop it over and, and take it from the sales world into the sport world. All of those things are within your control. But mm -hmm. what really has to undergird every effort, David, in my opinion, whether it's sales or a podcast or sport, is do you actually enjoy playing the game or practicing? Because if you're not deriving joy, I really, really am serious about this. If you're not deriving joy out of that process, then you should look for something else to do. People want to get like externally motivated. They need to watch videos to get them these rah-rah videos to get them all excited. But if you're having to drum up that much external force just to get you to put forth effort, then you probably don't actually enjoy what you do. Wow. Well, there's a lot of good things in there. You said one thing about how the attachment to a particular outcome <laughs> makes you more emotionally tied to things, right? In other words, it affects, yes. it affects your emotional state. Let's translate that into youth sports. Consider the outcome that we just talked about. So many parents, 34% of parents think their kids are going to go pro or make the Olympics. That's an outcome, right? Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned something really good. So much of outcomes is out of our control. Mm-hmm. Think about all the things that had to line up for you to be able to go play college soccer. Yeah. I think all the things that have to line up for someone to make the pros at 0.002% or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. So those things are out of our control. What's in our control is the process. Talk about if you can dig in a little bit longer on that idea that the attachment to the outcome actually kind of takes some of your own joy away and it, and it drives your emotional kind of ups and downs. And how does that maybe relay to kids? Well, so I can, I can tell you specifically how it would translate is uh, let's say you're constantly worried about, am I winning the soccer game at eight years old or 10 years old? Well, you're attaching your identity to soccer with the outcome itself. And, you know, we're on U teams. My daughter's playing recreational soccer. There's all sorts of degrees of levels. Every coach is a volunteer coach. 
nobody cares about the score of the game. But if we started to emphasize that as the most important thing, your son or daughter who may be a slower developer, who may not quite have picked up physically the game as quickly as some of their peers, if they're constantly thinking about the outcome, is there almost their identity is wrapped up in that? And then maybe they're losing often. Well, now do they start thinking about themselves as, oh, I'm, I'm a loser or I'm mm. not good enough or I shouldn't be on this team. I should be playing soccer because all of my friends are better than me. That's a direct reason where if you put so much emphasis on, on that thing, I can tell you in my own personal life, having suffered through different crises of confidence on the field, you know, any given day, you know, you didn't know quite frankly, unfortunately, which Spencer would, would show up to the field. <laughs> That's because I put too much sort of attachment on those things, those intangibles that were out of my control. And so I, I get very fearful that parents are overemphasizing winning, which is crazy as it sounds because I'm also anti participation trophies at the same time. Yep. Yep. But that the, the overemphasis on winning rather than the fundamentals and the basis of why you play. I think you can perhaps instill the wrong messaging into your children. It might actually affect their self-esteem if that's the case as well. I coach 15-year-old boys and we're in a competitive league. We're about probably fifth or sixth best team. And, and so we know we're going to lose some. We know we're going to win some. One of the things that we, that we work on a lot is why do we show up and play even when we know we are likely to be outmatched? Why do we show up? And that's a hard thing for kids because they are driven by outcomes. I think that's a, a, a societal thing. I mean, yes. think about school, you got your grades. You ask your kid what you learned in school. I don't know, but I got an A. I don't know, but I got an A. You know, We don't remember yeah. anything yeah. we learned, but darn it, we got the result we wanted. So going back to this idea of process, I think that is, if there's gonna be a golden nugget that comes out of this podcast for parents and coaches with their kids is take a look at the process that they are teaching their youth athlete about. What is mm -hmm. that? Is it, I only play when I show up to practice? Is it, you know, after practice or after a game that it doesn't go well, I get grilled in my car by my parent, mm -hmm. which, you know, that's one of the worst things parents can do. I've done it. I know I'm, I'm a hypocrite, but I'm telling myself and I'm telling every other parent, just tell your kid you love watching them play in the car on the way home. Seriously, mm -hmm. they already know if they made mistakes. But what's the process? What is, as, if you're coaching your kid, you're eight, you said eight years old? I'm sorry, how old? So my, my daughter is six. My okay. son's two and a half. So unfortunately he's, I say, unfortunately, I mean, <laughs> my daughter started playing at four, but he is not in organized sports right now. He's doing kids strong just for like, you know, physical development, perfect. but he's not. Perfect. So, so for a six-year-old, what, how would you approach or how do you approach a process of your kid playing a sport at that age so that the focus is on the right thing? I would say I'm not anti-merit by any means. I played at a very high level, like you told, you, you said earlier, and winning was obviously part of that. I think there is a point where you do have to determine, you know, how aggressively you're going to pursue something, what your commitment level is, is to that thing. And you want to win. I, I totally understand that, that drive. But at six, I look at it completely through a different lens. So my daughter, when she comes off the field and she's like, I, I had fun today, dad, or grandpa came and I scored a goal for grandpa. Like, that's fun. That is an outcome. But there's no pressure for her to score a goal. I, I try to pick a couple things that I'll say, hey, you were really, you were really focused today, or I noticed you mm. were paying attention, or you did really good on defense, or you put a lot of effort in. And I find a couple things. I really only compliment my daughter right now, and not to sort of build this false sense of self-esteem, but there, I don't see any reason to really critique her at six. 
Because she also does dance. She also does cheer. She just got into martial yep. arts. Like the things that kids are at six are doing these days is crazy. I love soccer, but the last thing I want to do is force a love of the game onto her. And so she comes off the field and says, I had fun today and tells us next season, I want to play because all my friends are still playing. And I really love being on the green mermaids. That, that is good <laughs> for me. And if we get to 12 or 13 or 14 and she goes, dad, hey, I really want to be serious and maybe want to try out for SC Dallas or I want to play in high school. Then we'll start having conversations around what that would look like. But at six, I didn't start playing until I was eight, Dave. I didn't even start the game until I was eight years old. So I, mm -hmm. I look at anything she's doing from four to eight to 10 as absolute bonus. And she might yep. discover that she has no desire to play anymore at 10 years old. And I'll go, okay, cool. What do you want to do instead? Let me share something personal with you. When yes. my, my wife and I found out we were having a daughter first, after we sort of got over the initial like, oh, we're having a daughter and dreaming about that, I felt a little bit of a sense of relief because I knew how competitive as an athlete I was, that I knew that I wasn't going to perhaps put as much pressure on my daughter as I might my son. And this is more a reflection on myself than anything else. But I almost felt a sense of relief that I, I knew that there wasn't going to be perhaps an outsized level of, of influence or pressure to steer them a direction like I might feel with my son. And since she was first, yep. I also get to learn a lot about myself as well, that I will not do that with my son now when he starts sports either, because I realize it's their life and their yep. interests. And I really can guide them, but I have nothing to do with ultimately what they're going to decide they love to do. Yeah. What you said at the end is is such a powerful insight. The kids, it's their life. Yeah. It's their life, their choices. I've raised four sons. My youngest is now 15. I have an 18 year old about to graduate and wants to play in college. And my older kids are out doing their own thing. And, and guess what I notice? They're making their own choices. Mm -hmm. At 15, 14, 18, you expect that. But even younger than that, they were making choices along the way because it's their life. What a great insight. And one of the things you said there was really important about not wanting to push your own love of something onto your kid. You want them to explore. And one thing you said, which I, I think, again, what a message. There's no reason to critique a kid at that age. I'm going to argue that there's very little reason to critique a kid ever as a parent, even though, and again, I played in college. I am a student of the game. I've coached, I've refed, I've played. Like I understand at my level, the, the game of soccer, but there's very little reason for me to critique my kid because guess what? They have coaches. They have coaches for that. Mm -hmm. And, and another thing is they have video and other things that they, you know, analytical tools now that we never had that they can look at and self-assess their own performance if that's what they want. Yeah. I'll just share this from, from my point of view, there is a danger parents of when you step into role of coach for your kid, that you can actually damage the relationship of trust between you and your kid. I don't have sponsors, but there's a company that I want to tell you about. Kaye, which is spelled C-A-L-L-E, is a street soccer brand and nonprofit organization. Kaye's mission is to promote community-based street soccer courts where players can play street soccer for free. No coaches, no drills, just play. They donate 10% of all their sales to the nonprofit Free the Game, which builds public street soccer courts around the country. Check them out at kaye.com, C-A-L-L-E.com. 
Now, I love street soccer. Maybe not for me so much anymore, but for my kids. My team that I coach plays regularly, and we play on tennis courts. It's 2v2, the first team to two goals wins. They're small goals. Nutmegs count as a goal, and the boys absolutely love it. They play with freedom. They try moves, and they don't get yelled at or coached at all. Maybe they get yelled at by their teammates. Check out our street ball night from my team in the show notes. There's a link there from an event we did a couple years ago. Yeah. They, when they look into the stands, when my kids look into the stands, they want to see me cheering and clapping and supporting them, even in high school, right? High school levels. My, my sons are pretty good players, but even at that level, they just want to know I love them and yeah. I support them and I want them to have fun and enjoy what they're doing. Their coaches are going to get on their case. Their teammates are going to get on their case. They're going to get on their own case about things they did wrong or whatever it is. And I'm sad to say that it took probably until the last two years for me to, to grasp this and really put it into practice. When my kids come off the field, I'm like, man, I love watching you play. I love watching you play. Yeah. I hope you played with joy. I could tell you really were yeah. putting your heart into it. And then inevitably what ends up happening is they say, thanks, dad. I really enjoyed that. And then they might say to me, well, what did you think about this? Uh -huh. That is an opening if I want to take it to say, well, you know, let's look at the video or, you know, probably this might've been something that you could have done different. But if I go in and be like, dude, why'd you shoot there instead of passing? What's the matter with you? Mm -hmm. Instead of, oh man, did I love watching you play? Cause guess what, Spencer, you're on the front end of kids at home. I'm on the back end. You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of not having kids to watch. Yeah. Yeah. What's that going to be I'm not like, afraid man? of not having kids yeah. to, to critique. I'm afraid of not having kids to watch because it brings yep. me such joy as a parent. Yeah. And I feel like that's the way it should be. Like that's, that's when you talk about the joy. And I think it really does come down to that. My daughter been doing martial arts at Lifetime Fitness. So we go to Lifetime Fitness and you get, you know, daycare there. And they're really good about yoga or arts and crafts or gymnastics. And she got into martial arts while she was there. Well, our coach, the martial arts coach, Master Mike said, hey, did you know that your Lifetime membership actually covers a membership to our studio? And would you like, would Brooklyn's express interest, would you guys like to sign her up? And so we did. This Saturday, she had our martial arts test, which is to get her white belt. It was literally just to show that she understood the very, very basic fundamentals. There was a moment when I was watching my daughter that like, it was like this, you know, when things get still and this is mm -hmm. kind of silent and you're just in that moment. I watched her and I was like, oh, she is, she is in it. She loves every second of this. I'm seeing her expressing herself through this thing that I now get to witness. What a, what a great moment it was as a parent. And I have no martial arts training at all. I guess she was good, but I'm watching and just going like, I, I see maybe something that might be a pivotal moment in her career. And I'm getting to actually witness this and see mm. that joy manifest in her. Like what a blessing for me as a parent to get to see that. And at that moment, I'm sure the thought didn't cross your mind. She's going to be an Olympic gold medalist in Taekwondo. No. no, I just thought she looked pretty cute in her little gi and in her ponytail bobbing around. I could tell that for those couple minutes, like she was just in the flow state. Like she just loved every second of it. It was so cool. So let's get on that because I think that's a really interesting thing for parents and coaches to sometimes pause and ask themselves this question. Why are these kids coming to my practice? Mm -hmm. Master Mike looking at your daughter, Brooklyn, saying, why is she here? Mm -hmm. You know, well, so yeah. let's answer that question. Yeah. Let's talk yeah. about that for a little bit. What I, I believe, you know, especially people that are truly coaches and my, my wife has communicated with master Mike a number of times. He's like an eighth degree black, black belt. 
He's apparently phenomenal with children, has his own hmm. kids. He coaches them. He's just a phenomenal coach. And this is something he does as a side job. Apparently he has a full-time job as like a database administrator or something. <laughs> but it's like, you see this guy, he's just so good at that thing that you realize he's sort of self-actualizing. Like this is what he's supposed to be doing. And so when I look at what he's doing for these children is, you know, I'm sure he went through his own personal development of, of confidence. Maybe there was, maybe his a reaction to a bully, or maybe he was a small kid, or, you know, maybe there was something that drew him to martial arts as a, as a medium, right? But he now knows that he's incredibly good at turning that into a gift that he can give to other people. And so I can imagine from a fulfillment perspective for him, mm. it's got to be an amazing experience each time he sees a new kid where the light bulb goes off, or maybe a slightly older kid develops a little bit more confidence in the way they carry themselves and handle themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's giving them life skills through an art form, through a, you know, a physical art form. And it doesn't matter if that's badminton or tennis or martial arts or soccer or basketball. You know, a great coach can really alter the course of the career of a kid. And I say career, I mean life, of course. Sure. The things that I developed in soccer have translated into my working career as well. And that's, I mean, what, what better gift could you give than somebody giving them something like that? One of the things that I say to my parents, the parents of the kids that I coach, I say this often, is that I am honored that they trust me with their children. Mm. And so my saying is, Coaching is a sacred honor. I'm going to throw that out to you. Love, I'd love your response. Well, I would say coaching is a sacred honor, and I've actually started to embrace that. My new job will include a lot of coaching and training and enablement of, of our young staff. And, you know, you so, sort of, there's a psychological twist, right, where you now discover, hey, part of my job is to be translating and transferring these skills into somebody else. And there was a little reluctance at first. And then I realized like, oh my God, I get to actually, people shaped me. If this is now my duty and responsibility to help shape somebody else, I know, for instance, in stop loss and self-funding, what it's done for my career. What if I could create that epiphany in somebody else? What if I could encourage somebody else to explore this and all of a sudden they develop a career and build a life and build a family around that? Maybe I just planted a little seed in their head through some education and coaching that improve the quality of their life. It's one thing to steer somebody in a direction that actually gets them off course. That's not what I'm talking about. It's like, if I could just communicate and convey what this has done for me and to somebody else, and maybe one out of 50 people actually pick up on that and run with it, like you get to actually positively influence the lives of somebody else. Um, and so I'm starting to embrace this role. It's, it's hard to get used to being more of a coach than a student. I think you're always a student as well, but I guess I know enough now to be able to be considered in a position to, to coach others as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to see an impact on another human being that helps them shape or make choices, right. That improves their lives. Mm -hmm. That is to me, that's the reward for coaching. It's not the wins and the losses. It's not, if you get paid, it's not your paycheck. You mentioned younger, fresher employees that you, and staff that you're going to help coach. These are people yes. who are trying to learn. They're impressionable. They're excited. Now you translate that into the kids who show up to, you know, let's say my practice. These mm -hmm. are 15 year old boys, 16 year old boys. They are, and maybe at this point in their lives, they're not listening to their parents as much. And I've had four sons. I know that at a certain point you you as a parent stop being a parent and become like a life coach slash cheerleader because they just stop listening to you and they listen to all their idiot friends, by the way, <laughs> but they don't listen to you. And, yeah. and that's fine. You just kind of know that, but you know who else they listen to? 
They listen to their coach. Yeah. And so you have these young people who are impressionable, who are trying to make decisions and make sense of the world around them. I spend between six and 10 hours a week with 16 of other people's children. Hmm. And if I don't look at that and say, I have a duty to spend as, as much of that time growing and helping and lifting and teaching and inspiring and comforting these kids, if I don't look at it that way, then I'm missing out. Right. And I'm oh, yeah. actually doing those parents and kids a, a disservice because they're trusting me with their children. If I could wave the magic wand and change one thing in the world of youth sports, it would be to give every coach of a youth athlete the same notion and a belief that this is a sacred honor to be mm -hmm. with these kids. 100%, man. I couldn't agree with you anymore. I don't even think I can add to that. That was well said. <laughs> well, I just want to put that out there. Sacred honor. I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. Moving on a little bit. So you did play in college. Yes. You were one of the few, and you were one of the few that made it out of the, the club, youth sports, into high school. I assume you played high school. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes they, you know, I think nowadays a lot of the best club players are, are avoiding high school. I think that personally, I think that's a mistake, but we can talk about that. Yeah, I time. think there's restrictions to the clubs, yeah. right? They won't even let them play, which I think they is won't sad, even let them play, unfortunately. which yeah. is really sad because by the way, kids love playing for their school. Even if their school team's terrible, they love playing for their, their mates and, and you know, whatever. But again, we'll talk about that later. So you made the switch from club to competitive to high school to college <laughs> along the way. What changed in your mindset that allowed you to kind of step up each time at the additional level of expectation, pressure, fitness, competitiveness, all of that? What changed up in your head to make you be able to do that? You know, there was quite a few times where I had moments of sort of shell shock, where I realized the level that I was accustomed to was no longer going to be good enough. What I discovered, though, is after you get over that initial shock, you kind of settle, get your confidence back. It might it's kind of like any period of growth where you sometimes you feel like there's a little bit of a setback and then boom, there's three steps forward. Mm -hmm. I think occasionally you need to be reminded that there are levels above what you do and anything that you do and that to get where you got is not going to be the same effort that you have to put in to get where you want to go. And so I think having gone through that a few times, I knew the process after a while of what it took to then now to step up. But I also will say, David, there's certain, there was a time, and I won't go through my entire college career, but I left Drury University, which was a small D1 school to go to SMU in Dallas my sophomore year, who was like top three, four in the nation yeah. at the time. And I reached, that was the only time in sort of in my career that I reached to a level that just, I bumped up against my ceiling because everybody there was recruited from Hawaii to AC Milan Academy from Brazil, where it was like, oh, there's guys that are way better than me. And so I could hang at that point. But then I realized, hey, there, there's only so much you can do to achieve a certain level of the effort and the process. And there are just people that are going to be better at things than you are. Hmm. And so I also had that self-reflection that happened. And I realized where my level was. I actually went back to Drury and finished out my career. And again, I won't belabor the point there. But I think just understanding the confidence thing that I mentioned to you earlier, I didn't know how to manage all the time setbacks and confidence. I, I would let very minor things really knock me backwards. And so it was a lot of work I had to do. I got into like uh, the psychology of sports and to some meditation, to vision stuff, you know, like before practice envisioning the practice and 
you know, just trying to manage my own psychology because I really wanted to master myself. And I wish I had done more of that earlier because I probably would have been a little bit better at it going forward. But you know what? Soccer was not the end of, of my life, of course, when it was done. And now all those skills that I derived during that time in my life have transferred to my real life in the real world, which I couldn't ever have replaced the things that I learned playing youth sports, man. Yeah. And this is why we have this podcast, by the way, what you just described. And little sneak peek for the audience. The next two episodes are going to be all about competence, talking about exactly what you were just talking about. And one of the things I have this conversation at my house our kids bump up against that next level of competitor and, and they have that knockback, like you just described, like, oh, I thought I was so good, but now I'm, I'm in a bigger pond. I'm the same size fish, but I'm in the bigger pond with a lot of other big fish. And one thing we, we always talk about, I say, well, it, is Michael Jordan the greatest basketball player on the planet right now? What's the answer? Right now? No. no. The answer yeah. is no. He's, you know, I don't know how old he is, 50 something, right? He's, he's beyond it. He's done. There's, there are 18 year olds that could beat Michael Jordan in basketball. Does that mean Michael Jordan wasn't a great player? No, he absolutely was. But it does mean that there's always someone bigger, faster, stronger, and smarter than you. But that also, the opposite of that is true. There's always someone smaller, slower, dumber, and whatever <laughs> the other one was, less skilled, right? You, there's always, as you are saying, there's always levels. And, and this is what I want to get. I want to ask you about your parents. Because I think parents have a critical role in mm -hmm. properly framing what kids are experiencing in youth sports like this, understanding, oh my gosh, I thought I was so great. And then I was exposed to the levels that are above me. Now I'm, now I'm terrible. Now I'm no good. Now I'm not even going to try, right? Parents have a role. That, what was the role your parents played for you in your soccer development? And particularly as you started getting up a little higher in your, in your career. Well, I can think the, the things that my parents really did that have, have resonated with me and, and left me, my, my father's still alive, my mother passed last year. They showed up every game. They took me to every practice. And well, I say that when I was 17, 18, they, I was starting to drive because I had little sisters, but they never missed a game, even like college games. One of them would be there. And so I can't tell you if they ever sat me down and said, you did this great or you didn't do this great, but you know what? They were there for every game. They always supported my decisions to pursue, continue to pursue sport. And so just simply facilitating my ability to play and allowing me the decision to continue to play, that's the thing that I, I learned from them. I couldn't tell you one critique that I ever had from my parents or, you know, on, obviously good game, Spencer, you did great, those things. But just being there, driving to the game, driving home with my parents, you know, that was all that I really cared about at the end of the day, man. And I, I hope quite frankly, that I just get to go to all my kids' games and they can say the same thing about me and my wife. And what a gift your parents gave you of time. And this goes back to kind of what we were talking about in the beginning where parents, according to that survey, parents are spending more time than ever with their yeah. kids. It's not always a bad thing, right? That's kind of couched as a, in comparison to they're spending so much time doing this instead of other things. But I then challenge and say, look, it's not everything is so, so black and white. Your parents made sacrifices guaranteed oh, to be at your games of time, of money, of being away from your sister, right? Or, or other obligations they had at yeah. home. Yeah. So I think that lest we be too, you know, too black and white about it, youth sports is an amazing opportunity for parents to demonstrate kind of unconditional love 
and support for their kids. I'll tell a quick story myself. My father grew up kind of without a dad and his mom worked all the time. He was a, a very competitive wrestler in high school and his mom could never come to any of his matches. She was yeah. always working. She was, she had to do what she had to do to support the family. He graduated, you know, got married and had us. He made career decisions that made it so that he was flexible enough to be at our games. And when I say career decisions, career limiting decisions. Sure. What a sacrifice, what a legacy to leave for me and his grandchildren that he was willing because his dad was never around and his mom was always working. So he never had parents in mm -hmm. his athletic and he was also a really good trumpet player. They never came to anything. Mm -hmm. So then he came to everything. And I always knew he was going to be at my game, three o'clock in the afternoon, high school game. He was there. There. Yeah. And I feel like that's a gift that we can give our children. And I know not everyone's circumstances allow for that. I understand. I'm not saying that that's universally has to be the case, but it's an opportunity to demonstrate self-sacrifice on behalf of your kids. Not mm -hmm. about here, I'm going to pay all this money so that you can go and fly all over the country and become the greatest of all time. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's a focus on we're doing this, we're paying this money, we're taking this second job. I'm racking up my credit card debt because I want to demonstrate to you how much I love and support you. And awesome. I don't care if you don't go and play in college. I don't care if you don't even make this team next year. I'm just showing you what you're worth to me. I, I would 100% agree, man. And, and I'm not going to diminish the potential for some people's children that are listening to this, right? I think. When you know you have a truly gifted athlete as a daughter or son, you know. But then you will also discover that they're also going to find their ceiling. I mean, how many, how many 12, 13, 14-year-olds were under 14 boys national team? And at 17, they're struggling to be able to make their club team anymore. Or they're struggling to, they're not going to be good enough to play even Division One for themselves or whatever. It's so unpredictable. It's so volatile. There's things like injuries, which we haven't even covered that can be devastating yep. setbacks for people that might actually end their career overnight. And so not to diminish that that's the potential for some people's children. It absolutely is. We all love watching MLS and national team and stuff, but just know that that's very likely not going to happen statistically speaking. So just being there, like you just shared your story. I just shared the one thing that I remember about my parents, like I'm, I haven't played soccer in 20 years, man. That's the thing that I remember about my parents is being there. So if mm. I, again, 20 years down the road, if my son says that, or my daughter says that about their parents, then I feel like I've done, done my job. What a message. And, and how nice would it be for coaches, referees, and players, if the parents on the sideline knew they were just there to, to support and love their kids. You know, yeah. uh, we may not yeah. have a referee shortage in the country if that was the case, which we'll talk about <laughs> another time. So let me, let me, as we kind of come towards the end, I want to ask you a couple sure. specific questions, get kind of like quick reactions. Okay. What was the most important lesson you learned from playing youth soccer? You mentioned sacrifice earlier. I learned early on, but especially I carry that into college. Like I was the guy that didn't go out and party because I wanted to have a good practice the next day or a mm -hmm. good game the next day. I realized that having something to look forward to or some sort of performance, athletic performance of some kind would shape my behavior and my habits and the things that I valued 
because I wanted to have a good performance or I wanted to feel good. I wanted to play well. So that has translated into my life where now my wife and I go to the gym like five, six, seven days a week, literally, and have never, I probably have missed a week of working out except for injury in my entire adult life. So what sports did is it, it, the effort that I put in shaped sort of the experience itself. And so that has carried over into my professional life, my personal life, just being sort of committed to health, fitness, and overall general well-being as a result of wanting to be good at a sport. That's, that's translated decades later into how I actually approach life itself. It's beautiful. In fact, that was my next question that I'm not going to ask you now about what habits that you, what <laughs> habits you have now that you got started in sports, but there's one and I'm sure there's more. What friendships do you have now that were a result of playing sports? Oh man. Okay. So we didn't get into how I, how I eventually played college soccer. And again, too long of a story to, to share here, but I almost didn't. And I can tell you to this day, I've got a text message chain that's been going on in my phone. I'm holding up my phone for obviously <laughs> this is audio only. That's been going on for 15 years and it's people that I played soccer with in college and every day we keep up with each other. We keep up with kids. We harass each other. Like it's still the locker room. We share news about soccer, about life, everything. And so the relationships that I developed in college that I almost didn't get a chance to have. Oh man, I, I can't even tell you what that's meant for my life. You get in the trenches with people. And this doesn't just have to be at the college level, but you get in the trenches with people in sports, right? The fitness workouts and the, the hard times, the good times, all of that. You do that with your peers. This is one of the reasons why all my kids played and will continue to play youth sports of some kind. I don't care if it's soccer, but something because they need that kind of connection with their peers. And, and that is something, again, that persists because there was sacrifice, because there was doing it for, for the good of somebody else, because it was hard and because there were some good, really fun, fun times and funny stories and all that. Really powerful. Let me, let me ask you this one now. How does your outlook on life reflect things that you learned from coaches and from just competing? Well, was, here's what I learned. When I left, I was really good at Ed Drury. Well, I, I mentioned I, I finished out there. And even whether it's high school, whether it's college, I realized that no matter how good you are, the program itself, the system itself will outlive your tenure. And so like you could be God's gift to soccer in your local youth club, but it's going to move on from you and you're going to eventually be done playing and there's going to be kids coming up. And now that system and that club and that college are still going to be thriving when you're not there. So I think appreciating, you mentioned Michael Jordan earlier, but I appreciating the ephemeral nature of a sports career. And know that there's only a window of time where you're really relevant in said sport. And then it's going to continue to exist without you. And there's something to that where you can kind of move on from it and you got to experience it. But now somebody else gets a chance to experience it instead. You know, it's not ephemeral. What you can take out of your short time as an athlete. I mean, and that's mm -hmm. the whole point, I think. And I love that you kind of ended up this way. That is the whole point of this podcast. And of this concept and topic that I, that I feel really strongly about sports is time limited as a competitive participant or of any level it's time limited, right? Because we're, we're mortal and human and, and we just change and we have injuries and we get older. What persists is a direct result of what we put into that and the people who are involved with us in that mm -hmm. experience. And that is changing lives. Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe I'm being dramatic, but I think 
Youth sports done right changes lives. That's what we're talking about. And I'm not talking about signing that contract for Liverpool. I'm talking about the things we learn about process, things we learn about habits, the support and love we feel from parents, coaches, other people, right? This, this idea that it's okay to sacrifice for something, even if in the end, you're not going to make a million bucks because you're going to mm -hmm. take it with you. You're going to take it with you. That sums this conversation up. And, and for me, launches what I hope is a long running and a really enjoyable podcast talking about different aspects of just how to do this, how to help parents, coaches, and kids mine the extraordinary experiences that are available through sports. So Spencer, I want to just thank you. Last, last I was words. Say, David, your enthusiasm and passion for this subject is palpable. So just commenting on what you just said, I certainly hope that you can, you continue this because you're very good at it. I'll say that as somebody who's been doing this for a while, you're very, very good at it. And it's something that I, I can clearly tell brings you joy. So I hope you continue this mission. Thank you, sir. Well, I'll do my darn best. And I'm sure that means I'll be calling you again. So I have your Let's number. I want to thank everybody for, for joining us. Look, I have many episodes that are in the planning and a couple already to be launched. So be, be watching and listening. Here's a huge thank you to you for joining me for the Dad Bod Soccer Podcast. My name again is Coach Dave Vasileros, and I'm just a regular guy who loves soccer, but really loves helping the kids learn and grow through sports. This podcast is for all you regular parents and coaches out there doing the exact same thing. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and a review. Share it with all your friends. If you have an idea about a topic you'd like me to cover, hit me up on Twitter at DadBodSoccer. Tune in for new episodes of the DadBodSoccer podcast as we grow this movement to keep youth sports about the kids. As always, love the kids, love the game, DadBodSoccer. Soccer.